Please turn to Genesis chapter 25. In your Bible's Genesis chapter 25. Slowly and effortlessly, the last breath of air escaped his lungs. His chest sunk, his eyes fixated, his body relaxed. From among those keeping vigil over Abraham, a characteristic oriental wail likely sounded, was picked up by others around the household and spread. Abraham was dead. His 100-year journey in Canaan was complete. For Abraham, the journey of faith was now history. And so it is with life. There comes a day when the race is finished. When your life accomplishments are tallied, your body is laid to rest, and your journey of faith in God is ended. There's different ways that we might enter into that ending event. For some people, that day of death is like a rapture. It's like a snatching away. They die with dinner cooking in the oven. A quick run to the market. Won't take long, I'll be right back. And they never return. They die with a newspaper in their box unanswered messages on their answering machine and seven-eighths of a tank of gas in a car that they've not finished paying for. They drop dead of a heart attack, they're murdered, or there's a fatal car accident. We would put in that category, a young man I think of just to the west of here, about half-hour drive away, a young football coach, lost a heart-wrenching game, telephoned his father in, on the cell phone and the car phone, He's talking to his father about the game, and all of a sudden the static came. His father thought those cell phones again. What had actually happened was that the drunk driving the wrong way down Highway 12 hit him head on. He was gone. Just like that, snatched out of life. Some are snatched away. Holy, unexpected, split second of time, and they're gone. What do they leave behind? Others die in the midst of an ordeal by fire, a very different way of meeting death. Providentially, they are compelled to stare death in the face in the midst of an intense, ongoing trial. They know they may die at any moment. Their loved ones brace themselves for the news. On one hand, they seem far too young to die. On the other hand, death stalks their every move. These are the soldiers on active duty. These are people imprisoned and tortured, as many are today, because of their faith, because of their beliefs, politically or religiously. These are the young people who battle cancer or another disease for years. I would put Jesus in this category, opposed by evil enemies who wanted him dead. Christ was compelled to enter the cauldron of Jerusalem. In fulfillment of his divine commission, Jesus battled the darkness until he suffered a martyr's cross. There's another way people die, living a long life in relative health. Some have the distinct privilege of slowly, quote-unquote, closing up shop as they make careful preparations for death. They pay off loans, they close out their savings accounts, they terminate business dealings, they transfer their wealth to others, and they cancel subscriptions. Slowly, little by little, they close out the last chapter of their lives serenely. And it is in this category that we place Abraham, the man of faith. In Genesis 25, we find a few concluding details to Abraham's life. His death, his burial, the bequeathing of his riches to his children. This is not a dramatic section of Scripture. This is not a man snatched out of life in some tragic accident. This is not a man who is stalked by death as Jesus was, whom we would anticipate would die. We just don't know when. This is a man who dies very serenely and very peacefully. No elegant eulogies here or drawn-out reflections concerning Abraham. I think what we find here in Genesis 25 is more like opening a newspaper, seeing the death notice of someone that you knew, just the basic details. You close the paper, you lean back in your chair, and you remember them. You reflect. 
What we make of Abraham's life is not left here to these last words about his death. What we make of Abraham's life is left to our meditation, and it is left to subsequent revelation as to how significant he was. First, we want to look at chapter 25 and notice the sketchy details that close the biblical record of this man's walk. First, we encounter issues regarding Abraham's inheritance in verses 1 through 6. Sometimes, at a funeral, you learn things about people you never knew. And sometimes what you learn is less than thrilling. It's my understanding that we have just such a revelation here as we learn in verse 1 that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and and Dedan, the descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, the Lemites, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, Elda, all these descendants of Keturah. Now in verse 1 we read that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and that reads naturally to say that when Sarah died, Abraham remarried. <coughs> But there are some compelling reasons to believe that that is not what is intended here by the text or what Scripture would reveal to us. I'd invite you to 1 Chronicles 1 and verse 32. 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 32. We have a little different picture that begins to emerge from the pages of Scripture. And I think there's something for us to learn here. In this issue, on this issue, 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 32. We read here in this genealogy, there's of course the reference to Abraham up in verse 28 of 1 Chronicles 1. Then we have a reference to Hagar, who we know to be his concubine, living with him at the time of that Sarah was Abraham's wife. And then we read in verse 32 these words. The sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine. And we can read down through there and see that they're the same people, the same individuals. A concubine is a slave who raises children with her master. A concubine can be referred to as a wife. We don't use it, there's a little difference here between Hebrew and English, but we use the word wife, there's some very specific notions that we attach to that word. The Hebrew word isha is, very, is much more general. We translate it wife, at some places it is translated simply woman. It's a very general word, it just means woman. Now when it's in the context of another man and who he's living with, then it's his woman, his wife, and we can translate it, and better for English to translate it as wife. But the Hebrew word is very general. And a wife or a concubine might be referred to as a wife. But a wife, as we understand the term, would never be referred to as a concubine. That would be offensive. The point is, Keturah was a concubine like Hagar, as 1 Chronicles 1.32 makes very clear. There's a second reason why I think this is the case, that she is a concubine living at the time that Sarah is still alive, and that is that the Hebrew text here in Genesis chapter 25 reads a little differently than what you will find in an English translation. The English translations that I compared all use the word Abraham took a wife, something like that, or he had taken a wife. But the Hebrew text actually reads, then he added Abraham and he took an Isha. He took a wife, he took a woman. Then he added Abraham, and he took a wife. Now that's strange English to us, and so the English translations tend to smooth it out for us and say that he just took a wife. But that word added in the original text indicates that Keturah joined another woman. And I would suggest that she joined Sarah, Abraham's legitimate wife. In other words, we are learning information here that goes back in time, information that is necessary as we close out the life of Abraham. There's a third reason why I believe Keturah is a concubine. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. We read it earlier, but you noted there in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, that it was unusual that Abraham had Isaac. It says there, by faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. 
And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. There's some specific wording in here. Verse 11, it says that he is past age. Not just Sarah with an infertile womb, but the issue is that Abraham as well is past age. Verse 12, he it was as good as dead. And Romans chapter 4 and verse 19 picks up that same idea, that he was as good as dead. So these verses make quite clear that it took a unique work of God, an unusual faith, for Abraham to become the father of Isaac. How old was Abraham at that time? He was 100 years of age. Sarah died 37 years after Isaac's birth. If Keturah is a wife taken after Sarah, then we must imagine that Abraham, already past age at 100, fathered six sons by the same woman, beginning at age 137. Further, it appears from verse 6 that these six sons attained manhood before Abraham died. So they were considered old enough to gain inheritance and to be sent away from Abraham's household and from Isaac to lead their own clans before their father died. So there just doesn't seem to be enough time in there, nor enough ability in there physically for Abraham to have raised six sons after Sarah was dead, being only 38 years from that point to his death. And of course, these men are already gone by the time that Abraham dies. There just does not seem to be enough time there. You remember... Also, that time is a little later here, or more extended, longer periods of uh, longevity is, is lengthened at this period of time. And so Isaac, for instance, is not married until he's 40 years of age. But anyway, for these reasons, we'll look at a fourth later as well. I think Keturah was another woman, another Isha, whom Abraham added to his wife Sarah while Sarah was still living. Unlike Hagar, chapter 16 and chapter 21, Keturah was not deemed necessary to the account to this point in time. But why is she mentioned here? We're closing up shop. Abraham's life is finished. There are these details now at the end of his life that need to be considered issues of inheritance. We already know that Abraham sent Ishmael away from Isaac. We now learn that Abraham has other sons from another concubine here at verses 2 through 4, and their names are given there. Now some of these men are unknown, others you might notice the descendants of some, such as the Midianites, will crop up later in the biblical record, such as Judges 6 through 8, as the oppressors of Israel. The point here is that God promised Abraham to bless and to multiply his offspring through whom? Through Isaac. And so in faith, Abraham distinguishes Isaac as his sole heir, and that is the issue here in chapter 25. Notice verse 5, as it is stated there very clearly, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. That is, he gave Isaac everything he owned at the time of his death. Before his death, verse 6, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Now here's the fourth reason why I think Keturah was a concubine while Sarah was alive. Notice there in verse 6 that it refers to his concubines, plural. Not concubine, Hagar, singular, but concubines, and I would suggest that is Hagar and Keturah. And the only sons that we find of Abraham are sons directly connected to these three women. Hagar, Keturah, and Sarah. And so it would seem that Keturah was, in fact, a concubine, and probably because of the age issues, living at the time that Sarah was alive. Just not no necessity to mention her until now. So Abraham enjoys the rare blessing of distributing his wealth to his children before he dies. But Abraham's faith is seen in the fact that he recognizes Isaac as the son of promise, the head of the divinely promised offspring. I think there's a lesson here for us. I'd like to stop for just a moment to consider it. We need to remember that Abraham did not participate in a romantic affair with Hagar and Keturah. I think that's a critical point to note because our context is so very different from that day. Having a concubine was a pervasive cultural practice. 
at that time and at that place. A wife often selected a slave by whom she expected her husband to father more children than she herself could provide. The wife was intimately involved in this delivery. You remember, Sarah did this with Hagar. We did see that in the text. It was wrong, however. It was adultery. But it was, we must remember, the custom of the day. It was something everybody did of any, that had any wealth and that had uh, slaves, servants living within their household. We must remember that this was not seen as adultery by Sarah or Abraham, who were both blinded to God's truth by their environment. The truth was there. The truth was in Genesis, though Genesis doesn't exist yet. Not the written record does not exist for Abraham and Sarah. It's there. The truth of God is there, but they do not see it. They do not understand it. I don't think that Abraham is willfully committing adultery in some illicit affair. But we do need to note as well that had Abraham flawlessly trusted God, he would have had only one son, the son of promise, through Sarah, Isaac. And the children of Israel would have been spared untold miseries of suffering to this very day had he done what was right in this area. So we, we, we need to, I think, understand him in his context. This was wrong, it was adultery, but on the other hand, it was the custom of the day. So before we castrate, castigate Abraham too vehemently, wow, <laughs> let's move on. Before we castigate Abraham too vehemently, it would be wise to remember that each of us is blinded in certain respects by our culture. I have no doubt there are things we do as Americans that are dead wrong. Dead wrong in God's eyes. And we don't get it. We're blinded by our setting. But rather than become fixated on what those areas might or might not be, I'm encouraged by our study of Abraham that God counts faith as righteousness, aren't you? He counts faith as righteousness. God is big enough to see past the failures that we do not see. And I think we ought to be comfortable with that idea. I don't think that we should stop and rest. I think we should always seek new light. We should always be seeking to understand what God intends, what He wants us to see, and to think past our culture and beyond our days and our situation. But I think God is much more interested that we honor Him in the things that we do see. So stretching for faith to see more, but realizing that God sees more than we ever will. We're reminded of this in Abraham's life. This is a blot on his record, but God counted faith as righteousness. We see Abraham's inheritance then. He gives it away to his children, children of Keturah. He's already given his wealth away to the uh, child of Hagar, Ishmael. And of course, everything now goes to Isaac, who becomes his sole heir in an official legal sense. Secondly, we look at Abraham's obituary, verses 7 and 8. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. The original text indicates a man advanced in age and contented. Abraham dies in peace. Why? Well, I think, if we, I think we do have here some insight. Chapter 15 and verse 15. If for no other reason, chapter 15 and verse 15 demands it. Because God in His promise to Abraham in 15.15 said, You will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Very specific prophecy here in chapter 15 saying that the Israelites will be taken to Egypt and will be enslaved there for a very long time. But Abraham will die at a good old age and that's exactly what takes place. God runs his universe. He knows what will happen. He leads and guides and directs his people to fulfill his will. And so in fulfillment of this prophecy, Abraham dies at a good old age and he is gathered to his people. I need to stop here to correct something that I've said before. I'm ever learning. Thank God for that. But I've referred to being gathered to one's people as being 
uh, laid to rest in the family grave where you join the bones of your ancestors. And that is a very fitting phrase, but I've been challenged on this in my studies on this passage to realize that being gathered to one's people does not demand that you're laid in an ancestral grave. So I've learned that here, and I want to correct that if you ever recall that discussion. But uh, being uh, gathered to one's people, the reason we say that is, look through all of the uses of that in the Old Testament context, and there are several people who are not buried in an ancestral grave. So we've talked about being gathered to your people, being literally gathered with your people in death. There's a sense in which that's true. But think of this. Moses is referred to as being gathered in his death. And what do we learn about the grave of Moses? No one knows where, he, where it is. No one knows where he, God laid him to rest. Aaron as well, uh, and also Ishmael, all die not in an ancestral grave, and yet the phrase is used, the Hebrew phrase, that they were gathered to their people. So I think we should understand this to be gathered to the people. A better understanding would be joined in uh, joining those who are already dead in the family line. It's just, it just means that Abraham died. It's just a Hebrew way of putting it. But in death, Abraham certainly faced the last challenge of faith. Having passed the test on Moriah, I have no doubt that Abraham yielded to death in peace. People who know how to trust God in life know how to trust Him in death. Death is our final intimidating predator. But if a lion whose jaws we walk past has been defeated by God, if its mouth has been shut, we can walk by in peace. If our days are lived with doubt, we likely will face death in fear, struggling to trust God. But if we live by faith, we die trusting Jesus' words in John 8 and verse 51, where he said, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. That's a promise. That's a promise to which we can cling. So at our last breath, as that last breath escapes us, we walk past the jaws of death. We set our eyes on Jesus and glory, and in that last second, we are ushered instantaneously into the presence of the Savior. We never see death. That kind of faith can endure the last ravaging pains of cancer with confidence. That kind of death has courageously endured the consuming fires of the martyr's stake for centuries. And that kind of faith can send you into the arms of Christ in rest and confidence. His obituary is the picture of a man who breathes his last, his last breath in faith. Abraham's burial, verses 9 and 10. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. The field Abraham had brought from the, bought from the Hittites where Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. The sons of Keturah apparently have no interest or opportunity to bury their father, but Isaac and Ishmael bury their differences and their animosity toward one another long enough to pay final respects to their father. One commentator says, Death brings together those who know, how to associate, who know not how to associate together on any other occasion. Death brings together those who know not how to associate together on any other occasion. And that is certainly true here with Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is 75 years of age. Ishmael is 88. And Isaac's twin sons, Esau and Jacob, are now 15 years of age. The text of Genesis is not laid out purely in a chronological manner. It is generally chronological, but it is also thematic. And so uh, Jacob and uh, Esau, though they are living, they're teenagers at this time of Abraham's death, they have not been mentioned because will, they will be understood uh, or, or discussed under Isaac in the history of Isaac. But together, we would assume that they are here. We don't know that. We know, we are assuming that their households, the households of Isaac and of Ishmael, have gathered together, and they lay in the grave of Machpelah, the father of their people, and one of the greatest men of faith who has ever lived. 
And that leads us then to a consideration of Abraham's offspring. Life goes on. In verse 11, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. With this verse, the text of Genesis turns to the history of Isaac. What we see here then is, as one has called it, patriarchal succession. The promise of God to bless all the world through Abraham has passed from Abraham to his son Isaac. Now there is much more than this here, but I think there is at least the hint of an important biblical principle introduced by this thought. The principle is this, nothing that God does remains on the shoulders of one generation. The people of God are people, plural, and people die. One generation melts into another. The faces change. The circumstances differ. The spirit of the age shifts and evolves around us as God's people, but God's purposes remain constant. And the promises of His Word remain true. And in this grand redemptive scheme, God seeks out in every generation people who will faithfully take His plan forward. Certainly would guide us down what is certainly a rabbit trail, but I think suggested by this transfer to a consideration to the children who are here among us, the young people that are here, those who have not yet children. But even those of you who are the youngest among us this morning, I say to you, you need to lead this church someday. It may not be this local church, but you need to lead the church of Jesus Christ someday. Your parents, those who are aging among you, are not going to be here forever. And should God continue to allow this world to spin and to go on and our lives to remain together, you need to lead this church. It means that you must come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and to follow Him in believer's baptism. It means that you need to learn to place your faith in God. To learn how to count on His Word and do what He says. And that leads thirdly to the idea that you need to learn to walk in obedience. You need to learn the truth. It is vital that you understand the stories of the scriptures now and as you grow to understand more and more not just the facts not just saying well I've heard that story before but come to understand their deep meaning you need to start to learn what God says in his word and to understand theology the study of God you need to know how to worship God you need to know what it means to pray in private and to read his word in private and what it means to sing a hymn on your own and you need to learn to bring that into the assembly here so that we perpetuate an assembly that knows how to lift up and exalt the name of God with all our foibles with all of our failures that we would focus on him as we gather together you need to do that and you start to do that now as you come on Sundays and you sing with us and you worship with us and you think about God when we worship and you need to learn to serve others, to look past yourself and to think about how you can meet the needs of other people. And you must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to speak to those who know him not and to claim the death and the resurrection of Christ as the only way of salvation for people. Children, you need to lead this church someday. Young people, you need to lead this church. And as our young people strive towards such goals, and as the rest of us continue to strive to turn over such ideas and to lay out such plans, to deliver them into the hands of our children, to leave behind a legacy of faith, Abraham certainly serves us well as a model, as a model of faith. He did not do everything right, his faith proved weak at times and his vision cloudy, but he remains today as a testimony of confidence in God. If there is anything that we can say of Abraham, we can say that he had a big God. He had a God who could be trusted. He had, he had a God who was at the center of his purposes. 
And so as we finish out his legacy, his life this morning, I'd like to trace a couple of ideas about this man that would be a challenge to us as we seek to leave behind a legacy of faith. And as some of you seek to pick up the challenge and be people of faith to leave, lead the church of Christ in the days ahead, we must say, first of all, that Abraham was a man of faith in God. It's simple. But let me trace that down a couple of lines, several lines here. First of all, his faith experience was initiated by the call of God. Genesis chapter 12, we see that so very clearly. We do not find a record of Abraham the good man, of Abraham the man that was smart enough to figure out who God was and that all the pagan gods were foolishness. We don't find some man who is somehow unique and God said, you know what, that man is so special, I'm going to choose him. All that we read in the text of Scripture is this, Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And what we find in later revelation is that God, in fact, chose Abraham as is indicated here. He chose him. He called him. Abraham was chosen by God. The initiative was God's. God started the journey with this call. Abraham stands as a reminder to us who know God that to walk in faith is an undeserved privilege. God will strip us clean of all pride if we come to realize what the Scripture teaches, that He chose us. Not that we're so wise or so good or smarter than others around us, but God in His electing grace saves. That is what happened in the life of Abraham, and that journey of faith initiated there by God then continued on and I would say, secondly, his faith, not only was a, his faith experience not only was initiated by the call of God, but secondly, his faith exercised itself in works of obedience. What do we read in chapter 12 and verse 4? We read three words here in the English that are so vital. So Abraham left. That comes across as just the obvious, but it's everything is right there. God called and Abraham left. He did what God called him to do. When Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb, Lazarus walked out. When Jesus healed the blind man, the blind man saw. When God calls a person to follow him, he enables that person to follow him, and they do. You cannot claim to be a person of faith and live in constant disregard of God's will. You cannot live in constant doubt. And I think James makes that very clear for us. Let's turn there to James 2 as we begin to think of what the New Testament makes of the life of Abraham. James chapter 2 and verse 21. And we have a few moments together here. I ask you to really put the screws down on your faith and let this be a challenge to you to see what faith is really made out of and how it really operates and what it looks like as we just meditate for a few moments together in the life of Abraham. Chapter 2 of James and verse 21. James 2.21 Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Second Chronicles. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. As the epitome of faith, Abraham went against all instincts when it made no sense and he offered his son in sacrifice to God. Why? Because he believed God. Now the text, I think even here in James, is careful to distinguish between works as the means of salvation and works as the evidence of salvation. Because he does not say that his works saved him, but his faith was there. His faith was what brought him and credited to him righteousness, verse 23. 
but the kind of faith that Abraham demonstrated was the kind of faith that works, that issues forth in obedient action. And so it is for us to truly believe God is to obey God. For Lazarus to truly be raised from the dead meant he would walk out of the tomb. For the blind man that he would see. For the lame man that he would, in fact, roll up his mat and walk. And for the Christian it is, in fact, that we will follow forth in obedience. He has saved us unto good works, which he foreordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 So for us to believe God is a walk of faith even against opposition and purely rational considerations. Thirdly, Abraham's faith was a forward-looking faith, looking to the fulfillment of God's promises. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. We could look as well at Romans 4. I will not do so this morning because it's the entire chapter that's based on the faith of Abraham. And if there's any concern about what James says in chapter 2, Romans 4 makes that very clear. Looking at the same diamond from a different angle, Paul sees red and James sees blue. But they're looking at the same diamond. They're saying it's a faith that works. James says you must, there must be works which accompany faith if it's saving faith. And Paul says there's nothing of works in our salvation. Romans chapter 4. But we'll focus here at Hebrews 11 and verse 8. Where it says, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the promise, of the same promise. For he, here's the forward-looking aspect, he was looking forward to the city whose foundations and whose architect and builder is God. So by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Number four, his faith expressed itself in intimacy with God. Genuine faith in God is never cold and calculating. It's never the type that says, well, God's proven faithful over and over again. I can't really count it otherwise. It would be foolish to do so, so I guess I'll trust God. Genuine faith springs from a deep love for God. Faith people know that God is an impregnable rock, and they know that God loves them, whatever may come, and they love Him in return. Keep a finger, if you will, in Hebrews 11. But I'd like to go back to Genesis 15. I really would like you to turn there to focus on this phrase. God's word to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. Genesis 15 and verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, and he said this, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. And Abraham came to experience that that is exactly what God is. He is a shield. That is protection. So don't fear, Abraham. He is a reward, a source of joy. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 7 referred, refers to Abraham in the prayer of Jehoshaphat as God's friend. God's friend. The first half of chapter 18 of this book, Genesis, we see Abraham hosting God at his tent. In the second half of Genesis 18, we see Abraham contending with God to glorify his name among the nations. There was an intimacy between Abraham and God. It wasn't a cold, calculated faith. It was a warm and vibrant faith. He could be called the friend of God. He could provide a meal for his God. And he could walk with him in love because God was his shield and God was his great reward. And notice it back there in Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. 
in verse 16, we find this phrase, instead, they, in the context of Abraham and his faith, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. You see what that says? It's a day when God came for a meal at Abraham's tent. And there is now, for you and me who know the Lord, a meal that's being prepared in the presence of God for us. We are going to be able to sit down with our Lord and commune, fellowship, to talk to the one that we love and to the one that we serve. And I trust then that when you die, it will be said that you made decisions and you displayed attitudes and you acted in such a manner that proved you believed God's word and you counted on his promises coming true. He was a man of faith in God, a warm and vibrant faith, a forward-looking faith, a faith that could let go of this life, a faith that brooked no idols, allowing no idol to take his love away from God. A faith that just trusted to the end. And he was a man, not only of faith in God, but he was, of course, theologically the father of the people of faith. Old Testament Israel, their identity was bound up with Abraham. The Israelites forever after were referred to as the children of Abraham. But there's a connection with us as well. Abraham's life is not, he's not simply a historical figure, but there is a bonding with him through our faith. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. This is what Abraham has to do with you. What he has to do with me. If we have been called by God, if he has chosen us, then we have responded by faith in his offer of salvation and have come to place our saving faith in him then we, like verse 6 of Galatians 3, with Abraham, we, it can be said, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But notice verses 7 and following. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I don't believe that this makes us Jews, but I do believe that it makes us God's people through faith. And we identify with Abraham, our father of faith. It starts in Genesis 3.15 where there is a promise that there will be a crushing of Satan's head through the offspring of the woman. That offspring, that line goes through Seth and then through Shem and eventually ends in the Lord Jesus Christ who is referred to over and again as a son of Abraham. And then in the preaching of the New Testament church, one more passage, Acts chapter 3 and verse 26. Acts chapter 3 and verse 26. Peter is preaching about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ for sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ showing God's acceptance of what He did. The heart of the message or the call of the message is verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. But notice verse 26, the connection to Abraham. I need, I need to read, uh, I'm sorry, up to verse 24. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you. You see the phrase, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Jesus came as the one who bore the wrath of God that he might convey the mercy of God 
and be that blessing through Abraham to all nations, to us. He was the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. So we learn from Abraham's life that God can be trusted, and it's a call to us to trust him. If he has called you to himself, if you have come to saving faith, you can and you must know this about God. He is your shield. Trust him. He will protect you. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He has said, there is no temptation, but what is common to man, I will make a way of escape that you can bear up under it. He said that, and he means it. And he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. If he delivered up his son to death, how can you say as a believer that he won't care for you? He's your shield. Trust him. Rest in him. And he is your great reward. You can bank every hope in God. Every hope that he will satisfy your soul if you will go hard after him. Genuine faith permits no idols, no idolatries, no dependencies on anything in this life. Not money, not family, not health, not good circumstances. Genuine faith looks to God and God alone as the source of our joy. So we walk in the path of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He endured everything because of the joy set before him. Because we could put it in these words, he walked by faith and confidence in the promises of the Father. We can endure anything if God is our shield and our great reward. And we can do anything if he is our shield and great reward. Where we get shook is when we put that confidence in idols. They don't stand. They crumble and they fall. Our God will never fall. I'm thankful I'm not in the insurance industry. I'm thankful I don't invest people's money and always say, I think this is a good deal. Now, those of you that are there, I praise God for you. You've got a good work to do. But I'll tell you, in this work, and it's not my work, it's our work, there's one message that we can share that will never fail. God never fails. He always loves us. He is always faithful to us. Always. And so for Abraham, he lived not depending on idols, not depending on the things of this life. He lived with his eyes set on a celestial city goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever rest in that kingdom anticipate that kingdom and put your full confidence in him that's what abraham says to us and I ask this question as we close, as we respond to his life. Are you dying from what you are living for? Or are you dying for what you are living for? Are you dying from what you are living for? Or are you dying for what you are living for? I hope I can leave to my children a legacy of faith. To the next generation, a legacy of faith that said, I died for what I was living for. I poured out every energy. I poured out my life for the kingdom that is to come, not for this life. Let's leave behind such a legacy of faith. By God's grace and his grace alone, trust him. And let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I admit to you in prayer what I know we all must admit, that we do not trust you as we should. 
we become fearful, impatient, discouraged, because we do not hide behind you as our great shield. And we follow the idols of this world and we follow paths of disobedience because at critical moments we do not find in you the joy of our heart. We look for cheap joys. We look for easier ways. We look to put our confidence in things that will crumble. God, we need to be shaken in our faith. We all do. Some of us are being shaken. All of us will certainly be shaken. We will face times of trial and difficulty and we will face that last specter of death someday in some sense. And I pray, dear God, that through it all you will be nurturing in this assembly a deep faith. We don't ask you for buildings. We don't ask you for fame. We don't ask you for anything in this physical world. We ask that you simply allow us to carry on the work you've given us, that your name might be honored and we ask God through it all that we might be a church and a people, fathers and mothers and children and young people and singles, an assembly that trusts you as their shield and great reward. God, you are a reward to us and how we long for the fulfillment of the day when the faith becomes sight. May we have been instructed in the faith of Abraham so that it might challenge us in our walk with you because we're not Abraham. We live in a very different world with different problems and different trials. We are blinded to different things. But Lord, we see you, the same God. You've never changed. You've never gone on vacation. You're as close to us as you ever were to Abraham. By faith, help us to see it. And by faith, help us to know as we face Moriah or as we face Pharaoh or Abimelech, as we face a decision with a Hagar or an Ishmael or an Isaac or Sarah, as we face infertility, whatever we face, may we do so remembering that we are people of a great God and that we can trust you in all things. Please do your work through the ministry of your spirit in the lives of your people now as we respond to you in our songs of praise. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.